The views expressed in this episode may be distressing and controversial for some audiences. The opinions expressed are not held by Why Believe or its associates. Listener discretion is advised. Why are there certain people that are the spiritual gurus or the, or the people that are, I'm the one that knows this stuff, pay me and it will fix itself. It's very common when someone has a mystical awakening that they, they want to help or be of service in some way, shape or form. And right now I just see that we've got like mass hysteria and mass, um, like mass hypnosis actually. We've been hypnotized. You've tuned in to Why Believe, the world's most controversial podcast on religion and belief with TikToker and researcher Kale O'Donnell. Hi guys, welcome to the show. My name is Kale and I'm joined here with Brendan Murphy today. Brendan, how are you? Good, Kale. It's good to be here with you, mate. Yeah, it's good to be with you too. Brendan, it's our first meeting, um, but I've done some really interesting research about you to get to know what your movement is. I just want to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know, who are you? Who is Brendan Murphy? I guess you could say I'm an author, speaker, public figure, a bit of an entrepreneur, um, so, you know, I, my, my dedication really lies in the realm of, of educating and awakening and, and uh, inspiring and showing people, expanding the sense of possi- possibility and, and exploring reality and expanding that in those horizons. So uh, that's a very simplified answer, but some, somewhere on the right track. So um, are you a person who was raised in a religion or were you part of a spirituality like your parents were a part of a spirituality? No, my folks weren't. Um, they were probably nominally Christian-ish. <laughs> um, so I went to a, prim- a primary school, which was a public school, where they had like scripture classes. And um, it, didn't, it didn't last the whole way through, but I remember it because it was there for some time. And so I, I received a certain amount of indoctrination in that um, period of time into Christianity and, you know, sort of like a Bible belief kind of perspective. And then um, you know, my parents didn't really talk about anything spiritual or, or what have you at home. So that was basically my only exposure to it. And uh, from there, I ended up going to a high school, which was Anglican. So again, a bit more sort of exposure and some more indoctrination. But, uh, you know, it was, it, it never really sort of, I never went down that road of becoming uh, one of those people who who is, you know, I don't have a believer's mindset is, I guess, uh, one way of putting it and cutting to the chase like that's my mindset is to to always dig deeper and to always ask questions and to challenge a belief system rather than participate in it so that's my mentality I, I piss off a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> that's the type of people we love on this show um, so you said you use the phrase do- indoctrination I suppose as a primary schooler as a young person you probably didn't know that word did you know that that's what they were doing when you were that age indoctrinating Oh no! I mean, I didn't have any perspective. I mean, when you're like seven years old, what what are you what are you gonna? It's just like you you accept reality as it's presented to you by the big people, the adults, and you kind of see them unconsciously or consciously as being kind of godlike. So uh, you wouldn't question their, you know. I mean, a, a child doesn't have a great sense of sort of sophisticated, um, you know, in analytical ability, you know, until that develops over time. So we're all kind of very naive and gullible. And I, I didn't realize at the time, obviously, like I had no idea that this is just a belief system and there's a thousand or a billion other belief systems that I could be being exposed to right now, but I'm 
copying this one. Um, so, you know, perspective is a wonderful thing and I wish we would in, do more to encourage it in, in uh, classrooms and, you know, other venues around the place. Yeah. So, so did you go to church? Did you pray and read the Bible and actually feel as if like for a moment you were a Christian? Cause you said you didn't have a believer's mindset, but did you ever like take on that label um, in a way? Well, I think, I think I kind of had a bit of a believer's mindset going through into my teens. So it was more like, and you know, I was probably just like, I don't know, somewhere middle of the road. Like I kind of just accepted the programming that I've been exposed to and I didn't really, I wasn't really into it. I didn't go to church. I didn't have like, I, I attended a few Bible studies groups in high school. I think it must've been like age 16, 17, 18, just to humor a couple of really very strongly Christian friends of mine. Um, and that's, that's interesting. That's an interesting experience in itself. But uh, yeah, I just, the older I got, the more I, I just moved away from the mindset of accepting and believing. And, and I guess uh, it's, it's always a good experience, to, at least once, to, to experience being wrong about something or to, to get burned by, by being committed to a wrong belief or, you know, being embarrassed as you get exposed, like being exposed in a wrong belief or caught out, so to speak. So I think I probably had one or two of those moments where it was like, oh, you know, shit, I don't know what I'm talking about. And maybe I should actually investigate something before I have an opinion about it. Um, and so that's kind of the place where I've lived my, my adult life is, you know, often I won't, I won't say much about a subject until I've really done some, some study on it and realized and gotten some perspective. And then I can, I can share things and I point out blind spots and what have you. And I like to fill those gaps and challenge the, the assumptions that people make and go, well, actually, you know, to get from here to here, you've had to make this assumption and this assumption and this assumption. And let's actually go back and challenge those and see if they're justified. Is there any evidence? You know, that kind of mentality, a bit like a detective, um, which is, you know, again, and drives people crazy because most people don't want to have to think, you know, it's hard work. Uh, so, you know, people like me, it's like, when you, when you like me, you like me. And when you don't, you really don't. <laughs> <laughs> black or white <laughs> so yeah. you sound like you had a, a very analytical mind and um from an early age you started to to come to light of, of what was what was going on and and what you really were um believing or not believing do you remember the age where you decided that you were sort of like a blank a blank slate again where you were just going to look into something else where christianity was no longer or was it just vague kind of uh, distancing from religion? Yeah, I think that's a good question uh, because I think the, the key point for me was I got exposed to a piece of information that was, you know, it was like the right place at the right time. And it was a book uh, by a physicist called Michael Talbot. And my brother actually told me to read it because he had some guy come to school one day and I'm three years older, so I was already out of school. Um, but anyway, he was year 11, I think maybe year 12, and he said, yeah, we had this young entrepreneur come in and he was talking about this book by this physicist called The Holographic Universe. And for some reason, he felt really compelled to tell me about that. Like he felt like he needed to let me know that this book existed. And so I was like, okay, cool. Made a mental note. And then, you know, six months for six months or so, I did absolutely nothing <laughs> with that. Um, and eventually got around to looking this book up. And I, by that point in time, like I'd been out of school for a little while away from know that kind of environment and you know kind of just didn't have a, a well-developed sense of or a model of reality or a sense of metaphysics or spirituality at all it was just kind of ambiguous it was like this mix of like modern day agnosticism scientism christianity all kind of blended together in this in amorphous hodgepodge and reading that book 
just absolutely blew all that up to pieces. Just, just showed me like, I don't know anything. I don't know a damn thing. <laughs> and it was such an amazing uh, perspective check and insight that from that point on, I was just like, I was gone. I was down that track and I, I never was able to uh, be normal, normal after that. <laughs> wow. It sounds like that book really uh, shook the foundations. If there was any that had taken root. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Not a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so uh, did you share this experience with your brother? Did you share like, like what the book meant to you or? Yeah, I think I probably, uh, I mean, he knows, he knows now uh, that it was a, a significant thing. Um, I'm not sure mm. if he fully realizes to what extent, but, it, but that was the, that was the spark. That was what got me started down that road. So, uh, you know, maybe if that book hadn't been there, you know, some other thing would have come along eventually it would have been that trigger, uh, but that was it. And uh, you know, it was it's kind of nice and poetic, maybe that it came from my, my little brother who I who I get along with and, and really love. So it's it's kind of nice. And, and since then, you know, I went down that road really hardcore, and I've been I've never you know, I've never had a, a normal like I've never worked a full time job. I've never done, done the nine to five. And mm. you know, he, being more mainstream, has kind of been and being the younger brother, you know, he's been able to kind of uh, take from what I've you know learned and the journey I've had and he that's influenced him in a positive way over time gradually and he's become more and more kind of like alternatively minded even though he still you know works in the corporate world uh you know he's, mm. he's quite switched on and quite aware wow so so Brendan did you ever believe in a god yeah I did I did um I definitely remember and I remember having uh probably in my early teens I remember I had I found this like little weird little lump uh kind of down near my down in my groin, well, actually in my pubic region. And it was like only a small little lump. And I, at that point in time, I was still kind of more of a probably Christian mindset, uh, at least as far as like a sense of metaphysics goes. And so I remember distinctly um, praying to my idea of God or, um, or might have been Jesus, I don't know, um, and <laughs> to get rid of this thing, this lump, whatever it was. And long story short, uh, it did go, it disappeared. Um, but of course, you know, in hindsight, with perspective and having done a lot of study in this realm, I, I know and I've written about this in my book, which is, you know, the fact is it doesn't matter who or what you pray to. The act of prayer is the act of sending directed, focused intention out into some part of reality or some system in within reality and influencing that system. So uh, the studies have been done and shown that it doesn't matter who or what you pray to you are still going to influence reality, particularly if you're coming from, from the heart. If you're trying to benefit someone or also their health in a positive way, then uh, you will, you'll be able to do that no matter you know, who or what. You can pray to the flying spaghetti monster. It doesn't really matter. Right, I see. So it, you at the moment, or at that moment, it was um, Jesus. It was, it was God that you were praying to, hoping that um, he was the one healing you of this, of this boil or whatever it was. And then um, you, are, in hindsight, you look back and realize that it had a better explanation for you down the track um, that you actually practice now. So yeah. do you believe that that God still exists today or any God well, it depends. I don't. I don't think I'd agree with many Christians on their definition of God. Um, I haven't found too many yet who have a, uh, much of a uh, a God worth paying attention to. Um, so yeah, I think it's more of a an understanding of okay, if you're going to use that terminology, you have to define what it means. And um, mm. you know, my experience has been I've come from a place of direct experience, like altered states of consciousness, because 
ultimately that's the only way we find anything out is by our direct experience you know like we only will find out what happens when we die by dying and finding out like because that's the only way we apprehend information is internally through our our minds so that's the place I came from and I've had those mystical experiences um, and I had, had the first major one shortly after reading Talbot's book which was that was the thing the event that locked in place that understanding and that perspective that I got from the book it allowed me to ground it into kind of like into the cells of my body and I understood and I knew and I didn't have to believe anything anymore because I had the experience that allowed me to access knowing and leave believing behind and so I had contact with a field of of in, uh, consciousness, an infinite field of consciousness with no beginning and no end, uh, which which was um, very hard to explain or con convey to people. But the when people ask me, I think the thing that I tell them that stands out the most is the sense of just unbelievable uh, vastness, just incomprehensible vastness of of what we actually fundamentally are at the base foundational level. That's interesting because I'm trying to equate. Um, in my mind, you say the, the vastness and then you say like um, in the field of, of knowing rather than believing, because I would feel like if I was in the state of believing, I'd feel like I'm in vastness because you could believe anything. But if you're in the state of knowing, you're, it's more confined. There's only certain things that we uh, know. Could you help me understand how you make those things how you make that make sense a little bit more about how you can, how knowing something, but there's vastness um, to that consciousness, if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the way a question is worded is, uh, <laughs> makes things interesting. <laughs> um, so what I, I think what I'm driving at is that when we're in the mind, when we live in the mind, we have, um, you know, we, we can apprehend sensory input from our, from our bodies, you know, from the environment. And the mind processes that via the brain. And at that level, we can imagine things. We can picture this or that. We can imagine that everything is possible. We can imagine to be this, that. We can picture ourselves holding hands with Jesus or whatever it is that we want to use our minds to conjure up. Um, but at the level of mind, you're, you're, you're stuck to whatever the mind can, can conjure and what, it can, what its capacities are. But when you have a mystical experience like the kinds that I've had and many, many people in the mystics through the ages have had, uh, you leave the mind behind. You leave that mental plane completely behind. So you're not operating in that realm of, of thought and mentation and like that cognitive, cognitive space is, is gone. And it's tra you can trade that in, that sensory like experience of I'm a body, you're over there, I'm over here, and duality and separation and all that, that goes away. And you can access something where you are simultaneously a singular minuscule point of consciousness, but it, you're like a drop of consciousness in an ocean that is infinite. And you can feel the infinity at the same time as being the, the little localized speck. So it's, I mean, it's very hard to explain. I mean, if people have had the experience, they'll know. And it's just like, yeah, I know exactly what you're trying to say. And it's really hard to, to put into words. But um, yeah, it's, it's a place where you leave the mind and imagination behind and access something much more uh, fundamental and deeper, I think. Mm, wow. We're going to go deep because I think this is, this is the thing that I'm interested in because um, coming to where you are today, you use the word uh, or the phrases mystics and things like that. Do you define yourself today as a mystic or 
or an atheist or a, or a Hindu, because you've got some Hindu things going on there, um, some beliefs there that is in line with Hinduism. So I'm just curious, do you have something today that is like a label that you, ha that you have? Um, I'm notoriously hard to label. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like labels because as soon as you do that, you end up stuck in the realm of the mind again and you end up living in categories and it's like, I'm this category. Um, and then therefore I'm not all the other stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, a mystic understands that they are, you know, a mystical understanding of me would be I'm Brendan Murphy, but I'm also everything else. Um, as opposed to being like, I'm just this, it's I am this and everything else. <laughs> so, you know how I started the chat today and I was like, so who's Brendan Murphy? Do you think like that question was sort of like um, hard to define because it's sort of, you talk about this experience that's vast, more vast, and that you're out of that. You're not like just a personality. So what would be like a better way to ask you? Because you must just be like, what I'm imagining is just this constant consciousness that just flows. So it's sort of like, you can't pinpoint Brendan Murphy and pin him down. Is that sort of what you would, what you describe is, or? No, no, actually, no. And that's a really good question. That's a really good question because um, some people take those kinds of experiences and they, they try to locate their identity in those experiences. Um, what I think is much healthier in the long run and more sustainable is to actually integrate those expanded experiences into the persona and personality that you are here and now in space time and allow that other that expanded perspective to, to expand you as, as an individual. So, you know, Kale O'Donnell is still Kale O'Donnell and, and, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be anybody's guru and I don't want to pretend that I'm constantly floating in, immersed in this sea of amazing vastness because my mo most of my waking experience is probably quite similar to yours in many ways. I mean, I'm just, mm. I'm here in my body, you know, I have to eat, sleep, shit. I got to do, do my work, you know, all this stuff. Uh, but it's, it's the con it's the container and the context that all that happens in is, is very radically altered. <laughs> I see. I like that. That's a really grounded kind of approach as well. It, it, it makes sense to me. And it's good advice for people who follow, who follow what you believe in the mystic uh, kind of sense. So now I'm interested because I have done your course. Um, I did your course this week. It's a one hour masterclass. I think it's the initial masterclass called Evolve Yourself. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the masterclass is called Evolve Yourself. So that's like, that's, not really the course, but that is the introduction to doing like to opening the door to do the actual work with me. Yeah, exactly. Cause you give all of the breakdowns, the four ceremonies at the end and everything. So I wanted to talk about this because I was very intrigued. I watched the entire thing because I wanted to get to know what you do, because I suppose your website and, and things like that was great because it gave you so much um, information about what people have experienced, um, but it makes you want to know what are they experiencing. So now I, I've got some notes here because I wanted to run them past you. Hopefully I'm not getting this all for free. Please send an invoice if this is, you know, a session <laughs> type thing. Um, but you talk of something called a fragmentary wound and you describe it as something that's in a second chakra. I don't know what a chakra is, but you talk about this fragmentary wound. It's this ancestral kind of wound. Could you tell the audience what a fragmentary wound is and what a second chakra is? 
Cool. Okay. So the idea, obviously, the idea of um, of the chakras, you know, that's a, an, a very old, old Hindu idea. Chakra is a Sanskrit term. It means wheel. So these are, excuse me, these are vortexes or vortices that basically look like little whirlpools and they're located... I mean, there's many of them, but there is regarded to be a seven, a set of say seven or eight primary ones uh, within the physical body. So, you know, top of the head, here, here, and solar plexus. Lower down, you have in the um, the sacral area another one, another primary one, and then you have down in the perineum region, you have the root chakra, the base chakra. So they're just energy centers. I know a lot of people lately. There have been a lot of ideas circulating or theories and speculation circulating about what they are and, you know, who put them there and this kind of thing. But it's if you just look at it in terms of it's like physics, it's just a place where energy and information is pulled into the body from the source field, whatever you want to call it, the vacuum, whatever label you want to use there. And it's pulled into the body, uh, light, energy, information. So that's those are the chakras, and what we what we found, and I'm I'm referring to Sol Luckman's system here. Um, he found through doing a lot of a lot a lot of muscle testing with people, so kinesiological work, that he kept getting this information that there was a defect around the second chakra area down in the sacral area, uh, the reproductive center. Uh, there was this like disturbance in the energy, and that was ultimately he ended up terming that the fragmentary body. Uh, so that is this, this apparently, as far as I can see, species-wide um, uh, dysfunction that we all seem to have until we do something about it. And it's not just him who identified it. So other people have noticed it by using completely different methods, like my friend Eileen used tuning forks as well. She works with sound and she scans the, the uh, energy field of people and she found this distortion in everybody and in the same place that it was being described. And then, you know, Reiki, Reiki practitioners I've spoken to have found it. Um, and other people. So it's it's not just like one guy's idea. There's something there that's measurable and detectable that is a, a blockage or distortion of energy that's really causing us systemic problems because it's so low down in the system. What's supposed to happen is our energy is supposed to come through the root chakra as well. So that's like, you know, the root chakra down near the base of the spine, there's a reserve of energy. It's, it's really electricity. It's an electrical charge reservoir. And it's called by you know the, the Hindus they refer to it as refer to it as Kundalini. So it's this is bioelectricity. It's just electricity. We're supposed to be bringing it up through the spine and dispersing it throughout the energy system, and it's supposed to circulate freely. But what the what Sol found was that this blockage and distortion in the sacral region is preventing that from happening properly. So we all have this huge problem where like the the source of our consciousness is massively impaired at a very foundational level and it's so subtle and so insidious that we we don't even notice and we can't figure out like why so many of us feel like we're stuck on this hamster wheel and why life's so hard and why we feel so disconnected and, and disempowered or frustrated or exhausted and it's like there's this one thing that's fueling this this dynamic in, in our life our whole life tapestry and it's called the fragmentary body eileen referred to it as the slavery yoke because it it facilitates kind of slave-like behavior and thinking. And because it is a blockage of the energy that supports our consciousness, we don't end up functioning at the, the conscious level that we could and actually embodying all that we could. Um, and, you know, it's like they say, you know, we're only using, say, 10% of our brains. And maybe this is partly why, because the flow of electricity is actually impaired. 
So this method, the first activation we do is, is a, a correction of that problem. And it does a whole bunch of stuff, but that is one of the fundamental things that, that gets uh, rectified in that first ceremony that we do. Mm. So you said that you guys are able to measure this, uh, this blockage and this, well, this uh, phenomenon that's happening. What do you use to measure, um, to, to measure the, the blockage, to measure the, the, the comings, the goings, what's blocked, why is it blocked? Well, you just described why it's blocked. I apologize, but you said, um, what is it blocking? I, I don't understand what is it blocking? Okay, so I probably didn't explain it as well as possible. Um, <laughs> it's, a it's a bit tricky. Um, so if, if, I, if I go back to that idea of, if you imagine a human being being kind of like a magnet, and, you know, a magnet has a North Pole and a South Pole, and it's surrounded by this magnetic field, and a human being is, is actually no different. We are surrounded by an electromagnetic field, and that's, that's just commonly, that's commonly known, commonly accepted. It's not new information at all. Um, what is relatively new information is that uh, we have this other stuff going on that is not well recognised and not easy to pick up and, and detect, but certain people with certain skill sets have noticed that there is this issue down in, again, that sacral region that we were talking about. And so it, it's one of those things where we can't really appeal to, you know, your average sort of, um, scientist or mainstream kind of health practitioner or what have you. But as I said, like Eileen, for example, Eileen, to use her as an example, she works with sound. She also is highly intuitive. And when she hits the tuning fork and scans it through somebody's just above their body, not touching it, just maybe 30 centimeters or so away, she hears the vibration shift. If it hits a patch of distorted energy, a so-called blockage, what happens is she actually hears the pitch of the tuning fork shift it changes when there's something not quite right there and so these are the kinds of things it's like not well-known skill sets but they're there these people are out there they're just not very well known at this point i see so that would be a measuring tool uh an example using this fork that eileen uses taps it and you hear a change in the sound um, and that would signify that there's something happening there um, in the energy fields um, and and that would cause her to go to the next step perhaps how do you break it down because I've, I've got it written down here and it's great you mentioned the kundalini because um, you mentioned well somebody in your course mentioned kundalini rising kundalini activation um, and Christ consciousness. Could you tell us what Kundalini rising, Kundalini activation, and Christ consciousness mean? Okay, sure. Okay, so if we go back to the, the, the Kundalini, the bioelectric charge stored around the base area of the spine that uh, has con been considered to be there for many, many centuries, um, this is something that when someone says Kundalini rising, they're experiencing a sensation of of probably usually heat or some kind of sense of energy rising up from that point. And it typically travels up through the spine. And if you look at like the old pictures or the diagrams, people usually depict it like two snakes intertwining, wrapping around each other. So it's kind of like a plasma plasma um, wave. And it, that is what people are referring to when they say Kundalini rising. The Kundalini, it's the electrical charge being um, roused if you like and moved and circulated up through the spine and then dispersed through the rest of the nervous system and if you want to emphasize like the 
more woo-woo aspect of it, then you can say it's being dispersed also through the chakra points, these wheels, these vortexes of energy, and, and it's circulating around the electromagnetic field properly um, when it starts to move. Where in most people, and um, this is an observation made by many different clairvoyants and seers, it's not circulating properly. It's very minimally functional. And um, it seems like something has happened to, to cause us like a collective trauma or whatever happened, but we, we, I think we used to be a lot more functional. Our energy system worked mm. quite differently. And um, it has been said that it, the center used to reside up in higher up around the sacral area. Um, and it, at some point it, it shifted and found itself located down at the base of the spine. So it's like, if you think, think of it this way, the base of the spine, the root chakra is like to do with raw physical functionality, survival instinct, it's like the lowest center of consciousness possible uh, that's available to us. And that's currently where the locus of our biological energy resides. It's sitting there and it's stuck there at the lowest sort of center of consciousness. So our job is partly to shift that and start moving it and, and circulating it through the system and into the brain uh, and actually becoming what we are capable of becoming. Wow. Okay. So I'm actually following now because these words, like you say, they're woo-woo. They mean nothing to me from a scientist's background psychology background these words don't mean anything but you're making sense by you know talking about this um energy that you know is is at the base we call it in psychology this reptilian brain uh but you sort of describe it this in the spiritual sense or the the energy sense it's it's like the executive functioning the survival kind of traits it makes i've made a connection there to those people who are from the science background of what you're talking about so now Christ consciousness, you're using a, a, the, the Jesus Christ. Is, is that what it is or is it something else? What, what is the Christ consciousness? Well, I guess, I guess, you know, because they weren't my words, they were one of my clients. I, I suppose she was yeah. saying something along the lines of um, feeling a sense of maybe expanded um, sense of self, a sense of connection to, you know, maybe everything, a sense of connectedness to the divine, to God, Something along those lines sounds, and, and, and I think people, when they talk about Christ, they usually are referring to, you know, there's an idea, there's an archetype of Christ that exists, and it's like, okay, so we imagine this being to be very loving, very heart-centered, um, you know, very equanimous, and so those are probably the kinds of traits that I, I imagine she was having some experience of when she, when she wrote that. <laughs> Okay, because it sounded as if she was having some sort of, I don't know, grandiose experience and, and you know, you could feel like Jesus or something. Um, so I'm glad I was able to clear that up with you. So now you talked about the Kundalini rising, that there's some sort of physiological thing that's going on. I wanted to pass by you. These are some things that I, I wrote down. Pulsing heartbeat, stone cold hands, feet buzzing, men reduced to immediate tears, bodily vibrations. Um, those are some of the things that are happening in the session. Why do those things start happening to people when they're having those sessions? Men reduced to immediate tears. What is, why are they crying? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's never, it was never the goal. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it happened. That happened to me after I did a very quick demo at, of the sound of what it sounds like at a, at a Nexus, at the Nexus conference four years ago. And it was very brief, but there just seems to be something about the sound of that chant because there's a particular vowel sequence and I'm going at the 528 hertz uh, tuning fork pitch. 
And I don't know, it just seems to resonate with people on a very primal level and they can't explain why they, they get so emotional. But it's like, um, you probably saw the comment of someone who, who said, you know, I had this instant recognition. Like they, they feel like they know this sound from somewhere, but they can't pinpoint it. Yes, that's what I was interested. This person was talking about, and, and the audience that are listening, she was talking about this experience where she felt as if she was, she had heard this sound, she knew this moment, she was so connected to something. Um, that seems really intriguing. Why would she know that sound? And, and why are people getting so emotional in those moments? Is, have, have, we re, have you really, you know, hit a nerve there in the in the conscious field or something and and she's sort of feeling her infinite her, her eternity you know somewhere along the line she's remembered something from a past life or something <laughs> maybe i'm just philosophizing at this point but you know maybe you can better understand explain i mean i'm sure other people have experienced this before why would she be the only one yeah yeah well i mean there's all sorts of i've, I've had so much weird and interesting feedback from different people so I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to propose to be able to even explain it all. It's just, it's just very interesting. It tells me that there's something very, very profound and very interesting going on when, when we're doing this work and I can't explain it all. It's just like, okay, so, I mean, I can speculate, like, for example, uh, maybe my voice has a particular quality to it and maybe combined with that, you know, I'm using the 528 Hertz uh, frequency with the tuning fork so you've got that going on and maybe there's something there you know that is that frequency is considered to be uh it's referred to as love hurts right so it's it's linked to the heart people have consistently or repeatedly linked it back to the heart and and the idea of love and, and this frequency if you look in nature and in, in the electromagnetic spectrum if you at 528 hertz in the visible spectrum you're landing in the green part of the spectrum maybe slightly towards yellow but that is green is frequently depicted as the, the the dominant color of the heart chakra itself. So there's all these interesting little kind of like coincidences that start to line up and, and add up. And it's like, okay, well, on an emotional level, I think it's probably resonating with people's limbic systems. And maybe it's, it's tickling their amygdala somehow. And I don't, I don't know. It's just very, it's just a very interesting little uh, mystery at the moment. Yes. And it is a mystery. I mean, there is psychology to do with sound and certain chords can, can strike uh, certain emotions. Um, that's why we have composers in music, you know, the dramatic sounds for the certain movies. Um, so now going on to the results, because that's what people want uh, when they come to see people like you, you describe yourself as sort of like a DNA activator. It's such a unique kind of niche um, and it delivers a lot of things. I mean, it's so broad. It doesn't just say, I'm going to do this. There's so many different things that it, it provides. So it's sort of like a lucky dip of what in the world you're going to get out of the session, as far as I could tell, because I mean, it says some people or majority of them said they had lower back aches and they had went away. They had knee pain. They had lethargy. And then those are physiological things that we can, you know, we can measure. But then it had things like people's purposelessness vanished. So it goes into sort of the things that is difficult, more difficult to measure as opposed to just like the lower back aches. But then after the session, people saying they were connected to animals and they had thicker and more healthier skin and they felt happy and attracted to more people and those people were more attracted to them. So then it just starts to drift into, okay, what? What is going on? So could you tell us maybe you've seen those reviews because re those are reviews for you or for the session. 
why does it drift into all these kinds of different outcomes? Great question. <laughs> I think I think the reason it, it happens like that is because, I mean, the idea of this, like the model, the theory of the model is that it's it's addressing DNA and it's honing in and resonating DNA. And DNA is what ultimately is considered to be, it, it's like the antenna of ours in our cells that reacts or interacts with the field, the quantum field out here. And so what we are you know, what, what it is tuned to and resonating with determines the kind of experience that we're having. Um, so in this model, it's like, okay, well, we're doing this thing called DNA activation and it's, we, we believe that it's um, triggering so-called junk DNA, you know, mobile DNA um, to, to move and to do its thing and to remodel the genome and to turn on certain codes and turn off certain codes and activate healing and all this kind of stuff. But because the modality and because if you if you address something at the level of dna it's the most fundamental level of, of who we are biologically and as i said it, it's interacting with the field it's like our broadcasting our frequency so you're going to have like like you, you've noticed like there's people who say oh my knee doesn't hurt anymore my back doesn't hurt anymore i'm not tired anymore i've got more energy so there's all these like immediate or obvious kind of physical physical effects but then you have the whole life tapestry being affected as well because when you shift that that resonating pattern that dna pattern that interacts with the field then you're changing you're not just changing your physical body you're not just addressing something in a reductive way you're actually shifting your entire almost like you're not your identity as such but yeah the whole tapestry of the fabric of you is is shifting at a, a fundamental level so your reality has to shift at the same time in ways that will show up very strangely sometimes and very bizarrely like I don't know if you've heard the story of um, Jung and the scarab beetle. No. So that's a great story. I, I do tell it in the book. So long story short, he was in a very intensive process with a woman who had shown, um, you know, psychotherapy and who, a woman who had a lot of psychological resistance. And at a very crucial point in time, she was in the room with him at a very, very crucial point in time, uh, this scarab beetle flew in to the window and, and started tapping on the window. And that was part of this beetle was a feature in this, um, if memory serves me correctly, a very important significant dream she had just had. And so they were analyzing this dream and then suddenly this scarab beetle shows up at the window and it's in a part of the world where these scarab beetles don't even exist. So you can imagine like she was mind blown at the synchronicity. This is what Jung called synchronicity, right? These a causal connections that we can't explain through normal mechanisms. It's just there's something about the non-locality of the fabric of reality that we are immersed in that we can correlate with these external entities or systems in ways that don't have anything to do with space and time. It's instantaneous. So there's this connection principle that Jung talked about. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here is like when you change something, when someone has a very powerful experience internally, frequently what happens is their reality externally mirrors it in very strange ways. And I had a, a very specific case of that, when I, which I mentioned in the book, where I was reading Michael Talbot's book, which we were talking about earlier. And there was a passage in it where he's talking about Rosa Parks, the activist um, who was the head of, who led the charge in the Montgomery bus boycott, um, standing up for the rights of black people in America. And as I was reading this passage in the book, this book, which was life-changing for me, I'm reading this thing for like the first time. And I'm blown away. I'm in this state of like awe and wonder and how amazing is this? And then as I'm reading that passage about Rosa Parks on the radio comes on this 
suddenly they start talking about Rosa Parks and it's just like, what, what is going, this is bizarre. Like it's not something that you hear talked about on the radio every day, but it showed up at a very poignant, like very psycho, psycho spiritual, powerful moment in my life. So non-local connections that we can't really explain through the ordinary channels, but yeah, it happens. <laughs> I like that explanation and that's an amazing experience. So the non-local, uh, this non-local place uh, where we can't sort of see it's, it's just happening. So this synchronicity, I don't see that happening in my life a lot. I mean, it's been described in, in uh, sort of in psychology that some people in maybe in that, those moments, they, they, they are on a hunt and they search for those moments and, Oh, three, 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 I woke up in the middle of the night and then all of a sudden my cat came in, you know, and, and they draw these conclusions. Um, but they may not realize that their sleep pattern has, has, you know, created itself to wake up at that time, you know, you know, because that's when they stopped watching Netflix or something. Um, so, <laughs> so these synchronicities, how do you actually, because we're all in this uh, world together, how do you start to get more of them if you want to experience them or do they just happen out of nowhere? Do you need to read a book for it to happen? Who's controlling it? Who, I mean, <laughs> who's there, you know, that's something creating those moments because, I mean, more people experience them more than others and then other people don't even recognize them. So yeah. what's happening there when spiritual people have them more than, than people who are not so spiritual? I think spiritual people have them more and they also are looking for them more at the same time. So, you know, someone who's open like that, um, there is just, again, this, you know, if you look at examples like the scarab beetle story, you know, that you cannot, you can't explain this through the ordinary channels of physical understanding and mechanics, but something happens when someone goes through like an experience of metanoia or they go through a profound life perspective shift that reality around them mirrors that back at them in ways that it's just like, it's undeniable. Like it's so bizarre and so, so unlikely that you can't actually rationalize it away. And I think when you are openly aware of that interactivity and that relationship that we have with the field, it invites um, a more, if you like, it invites more communication from the field um, because you're saying, well, okay, look, I, I get it. I'm here. I'm listening. I, I can hear you kind of thing. And then obviously it's going to open the channels a little bit more for whatever that background level of intelligence is, which is there. Like, you know, we, we talked about the mystical experiences of infinite consciousness. So we're all immersed in a field of consciousness, which predicates intelligence. Um, and so within that, we're having these, the ability to choose, if you like, how, how much synchronicity we want to invite in. Like if we're closed minded, closed minded people have very little. And when they do have it, they don't notice it. Um, so they're filtering it out. It's a bias. And when, when you have like a scarab beetle moment, it's like, you're not hunting for it. You, you're not looking for it. It's like, bam. And you can't deny it. It's so, so psychologically meaningful. That's the key word. It's so meaningful that you can't rationalize it away and make it go away. So what I found in this work, by going down this road of these working with sound in this particular system is that the level of synchronicity for me just, just kind of, exponentially accelerated and it became more and more obvious that it was like it's like a feedback mechanism between us and the field and it sort of seems to me like it's acting often as a guidance mechanism like people have crucial points in, of their lives 
uh, where they need to make a choice or decision or have a realization and they get these little nudges and clues from you know external reality um, which help them just align with the most true or um, you know whatever path the best path for them at that point in time and just nudge them in that that kind of way and for me the the synchronicity kind of just became a part of the daily like background fabric of of my reality until it it's just like I think what happens is if you are living in your truth and following your path um, and on the right path, then it kind of, that feedback mechanism eventually becomes kind of almost unnecessary. Like the synchronistic events become a little bit unnecessary because those, if they're guidance, um, then you, you don't really need them. Like if you're living in alignment already, then you, you're not going to need all these little nudges coming in, in in weird, spooky ways to get your attention um, because you're already kind of doing the thing. I hope that makes some sort of sense. It does. And that's the word that I was having in my head. Spooky. Um, this non-local thing that is sort of nudging you, this consciousness out there that, I mean, the Rosa Park thing and the Beetle thing, and I could probably, and that's true. Maybe I am closed minded and I filter things out during the day. And, and as I go, you know, that thing just happened and I, and it's not at the forefront, but if I really dug deep into it, perhaps maybe that was sort of a nudge from the consciousness out there. So it's interesting that we're talking about this because it's sort of um, making us rethink sort of the purposes um, because you mentioned that people have maybe these nudges um, because the universe or this non-local um, consciousness, the field, you call it the field, is trying to align you back to a path. Um, it just makes your mind wander, doesn't it? Of like, why does it want you on a path? Why is that the path? Why does anyone care about Beatles and Rosa Park? <laughs> if there's something. But I suppose that's where it really takes it. And it's really great having you, Brendan, because when you look at it from an outside perspective and you see the work you do, I define you sort of just as this spiritual healer guru guy, but really there's a lot more substance there. And I mean, you've been doing this for many years, so you're able to, to explain it in ways where um, people who are closed minded and not so spiritual don't really get it, but you can describe it in a way that people can get it. Um, so I'm just, I'm just sort of wondering from this point, why are there certain people? that are the spiritual gurus or the, or the people that are, I'm the one that knows this stuff, pay me and it will fix itself. Why are there people that, that have, that are anointed or, or allotted in the world to do this? What, why are there people? Do you mean in general? Like, uh, like uh, I think I need you to kind of clarify that a little bit for me. Like so what kind the, of people? So like the people that like uh, you were talking about um, Eileen, the -hmm. people that have these practices and they use tools, people like yourself that have businesses that profit from um, being able to align people back and and do these healings and things like that. Why why are there people, uh, certain people that um, can do it? Why can't we do it just ourselves if you just get a book and then all of a sudden you can do it on yourself why would somebody need another person uh, to do it because if we look at maybe i'll just bring it in um sort of to to bring context if we look into the christian world 
there are ministers and healing evangelists that tour around the world um, and they, they charge lots of money to do big presentations and you see the, the activities that happen in those big gatherings. People are falling down and they're crying like some of the experiences that your people have experienced in their sessions with you. But I come back to there are people that take on board this, uh, I am I'm the, the guider to, for you to, to, to make your way, to, to, to guide you to, uh, to health, to well-being, to freedom. Why are there people like that? Now, we're all on a journey. We're all, we're all kind of on the hero's journey. And if you have a level of like insight that maybe the next person has, then it's almost like a responsibility to, to share that and pass that on. You know, it's like we, we like I can speak for myself. Like I can't help <laughs> but do what I do. I don't, I can't, I don't have an off switch. I can't turn this stuff off. Like I'm totally, it, it is what I live and breathe and eat. So speaking of eating, um, at some point I have to, receive remuneration for something so that I can continue eating. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that aspect of it as well, you know, like that exchange to, so that we can all kind of continue um, surviving and doing what we do. But yeah, there's this odd phenomenon of people just, they wake up, they have their awakening experience and then they just are like consumed almost with the idea of trying to then be of service. And it might not always take the same form, like it will be in different ways, but people find a way to help other people uh, according to their skill set and personality, whereas often people without that perspective, they get caught up in the vortex of, you know, get a job, reproduce, get married, you know, save for retirement, you know, have grandkids, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you're just, you're taking the blinkers off and going, well, oh shit, there's all this other stuff that's possible. It's like uh, one of my, one of my buddies who read my book a few years back, she was like, she was like, if all this is possible, then what the hell have I been doing with my life? Like that was her reaction to it, you know? So it's kind of like we take the blinkers off and it's like, well, okay, we're on this journey together and we're all ultimately going to the same place. Like we're all trying to climb the mountain and we're all taking our own path to it. But if I am one step, all I need to be is one little step ahead of the next person and then I can I can help them get up that step. And it's like, I think humans just innately have the urge to to help each other, really. And I think that the way that civilization is wired, particularly with the debt-based banking system, it, it really in, it discourages that natural instinct and, and we're all fragmented and separated, atomic families and all this kind of stuff, and we're all kind of just struggling to survive. But underneath it all is that sort of, sort of irrepressible instinct that we actually want to be connected and we want to help each other. And, you know, people go out of their way in extraordinary circumstances and take huge risks and put their lives on the line to help a complete stranger out of a dangerous situation. And it's the same kind of thing. Like at the end of the day, unless you're a psychopath and probably like maybe 3% of us are not including myself in that, <laughs> you know, like we just want to help. Like we, we, we get that huge emotional payoff from being able to serve somebody. It makes us feel good on a fundamental level. And, and I can't, like, I can't do it any, any other way. Like I, I'm kind of wired to do the kind of work that I'm doing with my writing and research and this kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think there's any hope for me to go into the normal channels. <laughs> so it's not the two hundred and fifteen dollars that really pays off for you. It's the emotional um, satisfaction that that person has had some kind of relief or or something benefiting them in the session. Yeah, I mean, when I get those kinds of testimonials back, it's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty humbling. Like. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say about it other than, yeah, there's an enormous sense of satisfaction from being able to go, yeah, you know, like 
I help that person. That person's life is, is better off than before they met me. And, and that's like, you know, that's it. You know, 215 bucks is, is not a lot of money. It's, it's, mm. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hardly making me a multimillionaire, but uh, <laughs> fortunately it's, there's other ways of making money. And, you know, this is, this stuff is just kind of like, yeah, I mean, we help people, we, we expand their consciousness and their awareness. And um, ultimately it's about the transformation of, the human being and, and the evolution of the human being because at an individual level, yes, you create a better life for someone and they help, well, they create a better life for themselves and you empower that. But collectively, we also need to be evolving and moving past the, the level that we, we've been stuck at for so long. So there's that kind of like responsibility on a bigger picture level as well, I think. Mm. See, you know, Brendan, I just had a thought. This, you talk about the non-local um, consciousness and it. Um, you know, wanting to bring you back into alignment. Do you think people like Muhammad and Jesus and people like that being dropped into the history and Brendan Murphy, do you think, do you think that there's something that, that is dropping these people to bring people back into, into alignment? Do you think that's why that Christ consciousness testimony, maybe that person was getting this awakening from something out there that, they were also being chosen or, or maybe something, their purpose is to domino effect, send the message out and, and bring people back into alignment. Do you think that you're maybe one of those things that have been selected to be dropped into to history? Yeah, I think, yeah, you can look at it from in a few different ways. Um, man, that on a personal level, there's a whole other story there, which we probably don't have time for. Um, and yeah, there is this, I think there's an imperative in the collective consciousness to, to try to, it's, it's sort of weird because we're conflicted. We're like, we're trying to stay in the same place and we're trying not to evolve, but then there's this imperative that is saying we need to evolve and we need to move forward. And then you get these like kind of avatar type characters showing up who kind of try to facilitate that. And I think that that, that sort of impulse in the collective um, may it may not actually originate in the human collective. It may be something. I think it's found. It's it's supported by something impersonal in the universe itself, in the foundational kind of structure or configuration of it. Um, that the universe is essentially hardwired or biased towards higher and higher levels of um, self-organization and self-awareness. And so it's it's a natural outgrowth of that that inherent dynamic, that nature of the universe to then naturally produce people who want to wake up and want to help others wake up because it's a function of that underlying um, imperative. That's a really good explanation. I, I really like that. I just wanted to throw it out there um, because I, I was curious to know in these times uh, that we're living in at the moment, uh, particularly around this COVID-19 flying around, as a spiritual guru, do you think that you could do something for COVID-19? Well, I don't, I have to, I have to pull you up on the guru thing. I don't like that word <laughs> and I don't want to be anyone's guru. Um, I do like to, I do, I am quite known um, in my sort of community. I'm known as like the voice of reason and I'm the guy who speaks up and maybe says the things that people don't want to hear, but it's like, you know, okay, let's all just calm down. <laughs> let's all just take a breath. This isn't what it appears to be kind of thing. Um, and so at, right now I just see that we've got like mass hysteria and mass, um, like mass hypnosis actually. We've been hypnotized um, into manifesting and, and worsening something that 
arguably may not have happened at all if it wasn't for the fact for the power of suggestion and i think there's a huge psychosomatic phenomenon unfolding uh which may or may not be driven by um you know an actual medical condition which is a whole other discussion right that, that's actually a really murky area that very few people are aware of how dodgy and murky it gets but um yeah i feel like i'm probably going a bit off off track in, in answering your question there. so just briefly could you tell us maybe because this is the the place that i i i wander and it's the dangerous waters that i play in uh is this murky water uh to know um is COVID 19 real that's a it's a great question and it looks like to me the the ability for um medical the medical world uh to demonstrate and prove its reality is extremely limited um, you know, scientists claimed to have identified and isolated the measles virus. Um, it turns out that that wasn't the case. You know, they claimed back decades ago that they had isolated uh, the polio virus, but that turned out to not be the case. So as you go through, you know, case by case by case, it's like this house of cards and it starts to fall down. Um, and it's like, okay, so we know bacteria are real because we can see them really easily with a light microscope. Um, but viruses are much, much smaller and they have to be seen with an electron microscope. And then there's all these like diagnostic issues. You know, you've got to purify your sample. You've got to be able to isolate it and all this stuff before you can say, yes, this is definitely what we think it is. Um, and that, that discussion isn't happening. So my two cents worth is basically, unless you are, you know, most of the people who are getting sick according to COVID-19 are already ill they're already susceptible they're already compromised um and, and it's you know it's sad but that's what it is like they were going to get the, the cold or the flu anyway and they were if they if they died they were probably going to die from that anyway like that's the reality that we have day in day out every year there's flu season every year we get the coughs and colds and all this stuff and it's like if you're not immune compromised uh you're going to be okay you're going to be fine because a healthy cell what happens is when we get sick and, or poisoned and chronically stressed cells actually respond by producing viral material. So we create it endogenously, we're building it internally. And then that will be picked up in a test like a PCR test. And that will then mean you will, you'll test positive for COVID-19 when re in reality, your cells are making this stuff internally as a result of being toxic, being malnourished, all this stuff. So these are the parts of the discussion that aren't being had. And we can actually turn the whole paradigm on its head and if we do that, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to be paranoid. We can just kind of be sensible and go on about our business. You know, like it it's really seems to be a case of they're padding, they're driving this, this with bogus statistics. And um, if, we, if we just stop listening to the mass media and, and the talking heads in the government and the medical system, we can, we can rise above the fear and then we won't be stressed out. Like we won't be in fear and we won't be so likely to create these symptoms and get sick in the first place because again the power of suggestion and stress means that we will do this stuff to ourselves unconsciously if you get stressed out enough so let's not do that let's stay in our center stay calm look at the facts embrace doubt doubt and and question everything like question everything and, and you'll see when you do that when you do the homework very often you realize oh well there's really nothing to actually be afraid of here and maybe i'll just turn the tv off now <laughs> I can see why your friends call you the voice of reason and that you say things just because you're not going to change it for anyone. And I love that. 
And I think that the take-home point for it is, is to rise above the fear. Whatever the doubt is, whatever the conspiracies are, just rise above the fear um, and to question everything. And I think that that's a really good take-home point. Brendan, I want to give you an opportunity now to talk about um, your book and to talk about um, your transforming uh, course, Evolve Yourself, is, is this Sunday, the 29th. Uh, when this airs, it's going to be tomorrow for those who are going to be listening. Um, so could you give us a rundown of your, um, your book and this movement? So if people want to jump on board. Okay, yeah, cool. So my book is The Grand Illusion, uh, a synthesis of science and spirituality. And you can get that uh, through my website, which is brendandmurphy.com. It covers uh, a lot of the stuff that we talked about. Uh, remote healing, the quantum mechanics stuff, the, um, the government funded psychic spies programs, the, the uh, research that's been done into all the different human psychic abilities and what they look like and how they work. And, um, you know, it's, it's very, very, very comprehensive. I mean, it's 665 pages and uh, it is something that I think will still be very, very relevant. It's not, it's not a book that's going to date easily. Uh, and I've had a number of people you know, basically tell me that it's, it's been a life-changing kind of a read because of the way that it is structured and the content of it. Um, and it sort of follows a logical format. You know, it's designed, I designed it very deliberately to take people through a, a little bit of a journey and, and just continually expand and expand and expand their sense of possibility and identity at the same time. So we cover the mystical experiences, uh, the foundational fabric of reality and what that looks like, clairvoyant research into the fabric of reality and subatomic particles um, yeah, so there's a lot of really, really interesting material in there. I could, I could go on for a while. <laughs> I love that. Brendan, we've come to the end of our show today. I want to say thanks so much for jumping on. I've had a great time just being able to pick your brain and just do it in a way where there's just no filters. We can just talk about it and I can ask all the questions that I want to ask. And I'm sure the audience have been inspired today to really think outside the box um, and to question things, um, but also to reconsider um, maybe some more core things about ourselves as opposed to just the daily growth. And I think that that's probably the take home message. So, Brendan, thanks for jumping on Why I Believe today. Awesome, man. Thanks. Heaps, Gail. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in today. Go into the draw to win $200. Leave a rating and review of this episode of Why Believe on Apple Podcasts today. Follow us on Instagram at Why Believe Podcast for the latest shows, upcoming guests, and exclusive content. 